Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the persistent challenge of how to ensure that everyone has adequate housing and discuss why the U.S. faces these issues and what can and can't be done at various levels of government. We also explore how we might reframe the way we discuss housing and homelessness to help us rethink solutions. My guest is Tony Sparks, Associate Professor of Urban Studies and Planning in the Public Affairs and Civic Engagement, or PACE, program at San Francisco State. Talk to me a little bit about how you see the state of working to solve this challenge we have of helping unhoused people get housed or addressing these issues. Where are we right now in your estimation in San Francisco and in California? Well, where we are is honestly not that much different than where we were 10 years ago. It's not to say we haven't done anything for 10 years. Um, San Francisco has implemented some some great policies and done a lot of work in uh, increasing the number of permanent supportive housing and shelter. Um, But essentially the problem is homelessness is not something that can be solved on the back end. Uh, So no matter what cities throw at it, um, they can't stop people from being displaced. So, you know, what we've seen really since 2008 housing crisis is more people have been being displaced uh, from housing for a variety of reasons, mostly because they can't afford it. We know the housing costs are going up everywhere in the Bay Area. But what has happened in the past I would say since 2014, is a dramatic increase in San Francisco of the number of unsheltered homelessness, that is people that don't have access to anywhere to sleep at night. And a part of that increase is because the number of people without shelter has grown. Part of that is because the shelter pipeline is blocked. And part of that is because of the way we count. When we talk about the homeless crisis uh, in San Francisco, what we're really talking about is not a giant upswing in the number of people without housing. It's a giant upswing in the visibility of people without housing. What do you mean? You know, going back to the to the early 1970s, San Francisco has been dealing with issues of people being unhoused. And largely um, those that were left out of the shelter system or out of the SRO system uh, existed on the city's fringes, um, in encampments and trailers, out in places like Mission Bay and Dogpatch. You know, as those places have become hot sites of of luxury development, um, what I tell my students a lot of times is it's not that homeless people appeared on people's stoops. It's that the stoops appeared where homeless people already were. You know, starting in the middle 2010s, 2014, 2015, the housing crisis combined with the the crisis in shelter combined with an incredible area of development in San Francisco made people without housing way more visible to to average folks. Um, There's less places for them to go. Um, People try and sort of eke out a spot wherever they can. And those spots have just gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, not simply because of development, but also because of the way policing is done and the way people are moved around and the way that public spaces are regulated to not allow people 
places to spend the night. You mentioned unsheltered homelessness. And how would you distinguish between unsheltered versus sheltered homelessness? Okay, first, that's not my word. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) That's the federal government's word. And the word comes from uh, every city is mandated to do a one-night count. Happens in January. People does a shelter count. And that is, so on this one night in January, places that provide shelter for folks um, do a census and report how many people were there. Then there's a second part of the count, which is an unsheltered count. And this is done, it's done differently in in every city and they ask different questions. Um, But by and large, what they do is they recruit a bunch of citizen scientists and give them a little training. And then they go out one night in January and they uh, count people who look a little scruffy. I mean, I'm I'm being a little glib, but it's sort of the gist of, of how that works. And that's where the unsheltered count comes from. Got it. Okay, so you talk about uh, people moving around. And I must say, just walking around in San Francisco, yes, things have moved. Like the money has moved into different neighborhoods. And, you know, the south of Market area, which used to be a bit rougher, is now very nice. And all of that is going on. And then you talked about the regulation of public spaces. Can you talk a bit about uh, strategies maybe that you have seen work for helping alleviate this situation and helping people – maybe not become unhoused or or helping them get into a space. I don't think I'm saying anything radical in saying that, you know, that the answer it's contained right in the name, right? The the answer to homelessness is is homes. I don't think it's weird to say that everybody knows that. Um but there are a number of uh a whole host of hurdles going, you know, right back to when we created the first national homeless policy in the 1980s and even before, the problem is the housing market as we have it, a primarily market-based housing system, necessarily excludes those at the bottom of the barrel, right? If property is something that's done through uh, private land ownership, then you know, you're not going to be able to recoup your costs in building or in renting if the person who you're renting to has no money. The problem with that is that Dealing with homelessness is not something that cities have the legislative tool to do. People become unhoused for a variety of reasons in a variety of locations. Cities, the vast majority of their income is um, property taxes. So, of course, cities have a vested interest in the private property market. They don't have a lot of money to just take housing off that market. Um, San Francisco, incidentally, has done a great job. They have master leases on a number of places where people can stay. They own a a good number of shelters, and and they've created a lot of housing. But this is the Bay Area, right? (laughs) Nobody can afford to live here. If I hadn't moved here 20 years ago, I wouldn't be able to afford to live here, and I'm a professor. Right. You know, unless there is a concerted effort, not just in the city, but everywhere, to make housing something that everyone can access, no city alone is ever going to be able to tackle it. Things that city governments can do is largely time, space, and manner restrictions. You know, they operate through zoning. They operate through um, nuisance. They operate through the preservation of property law. And so really their power is not to house people, but to move people around. And so what we see going on now is just a sort of obvious expression of that power. 
that's really insightful about what cities are capable of doing. And that sort of gets to the larger systemic issues because we can do this one thing or that one thing, et cetera. But there is a systemic issue that we need to solve. And I want to come back to sort of uh, historic city efforts in a minute. But where does this ability to address this issue more coherently lie? Countries that on the national level enshrine a right to housing and social housing is something that is available equally to all residents, those are the places that don't have the problem. So it's it's at the national level. We need to have a national sort of rethinking of this. Then what can states do? Theoretically, there could be a right to housing at the state level, uh, even at the city level, right? Uh, New York City, although they're talking about repealing it right now, has a Right to Shelter Act that um, requires that people who seek shelter can have it. That could potentially be addressed at the state level. But of course, you know, it's difficult. Borders are open, people move from place to place. Um, city governments do not have the unlimited pots of money that national governments are. The state of California already has a fairly high tax level and we're limited in what we can do and, and what percentage of what we do goes to the, the national government. There's a fundamental problem with housing being a exclusionary commodity that will always pose any problem for a government, right? We regulate housing, for instance, in a way that we do not regulate air. You cannot take away someone's right. You can't make someone pay to breathe, right? To the extent that we all need a place to be by making that a market discussion and not a commons discussion. You know, we don't think about housing the same way we do air or oceans or, you know, other things that, that we all need. Uh, and unless we do that, it's going to be a sticky, complicated and incomplete problem for any government at any scale. And that feels like a heavy lift for us in the U.S. because in the U.S., we have more of an approach of thinking about things from the individual level rather than the systems level. And so a lot of, a lot of the discussions around homelessness this individual responsibility aspect. And I'm not saying that's the only piece. I think we need to be caring for people. But then how do you help people help themselves? And how do you help people who can't help themselves? For example, there are people who are unhoused right now who have mental illness and need more help from those of us who can help, right? And then there are people who were housed, but because their building was knocked down, they're still working. They're just not housed anymore. They're in a tent or whatever and still going to work and still and, you know, using the gym to shower there. So there's like this spectrum. Being unhoused, having mental health issues and having substance abuse issues are three different problems, right? We all, as human beings, housed, rich, poor, we all require mental health care. We all require help with substance abuse and, and other issues. These are things that are uh, endemic to modern humans. The fact that these things occur also with people that don't have housing, it's not a causal relationship, nor are the things necessarily related. Um, you know, earlier you brought up the personal responsibility issue, um, and it's one that, that gets brought up a lot. And talking about homelessness and personal responsibility is, as a social scientist, from an incredible point of scientific ignorance. You know, like if we had unlimited housing for everybody and there were still people that, that couldn't access it, then we could have that question seriously. But we are not and have never been in the United States at that point. 
so difficult because the conversation gets stuck there. And I think in a lot of ways, it's difficult for Americans in general to move beyond that construct when we're talking about issues. And so I, you know, part of it is to sort of break down how we can do that um, because I think it keeps us from solving problems, right? Yeah. And so we have to bring it up. We have to talk about it to move through it. Yeah, and I think part of the, the way we do it is homelessness is, is an aesthetic category for 99.9% of us, right? Um, we don't know when we see somebody on the street whether or not that person is going home at night. I'll just use myself as an example. When I was an undergraduate, I spent about six months unhoused in San Francisco because I was a student. I rented a place. My house got sold. I had to wait for my student loans to come through before I could, so I had to wait a semester. So I lived in my car. I lived in the park, in Golden Gate Park. And I'll tell you, I looked, except for the fact that I'm now much grayer, I looked like me, right? Um, and the vast majority of people I met also looked like me. You know, so when you see me walking down the street, I'm guessing most people don't go, hey, look at the homeless guy. You know what I mean? You know, I think when people say, I encountered homeless people on my ride home on the bar, they're not talking about people who lack housing. They're talking about a particular aesthetic that doesn't conform to uh, middle class norms of what BART writers should look like. Part of the reason that issues of mental health and substance abuse and personal hygiene and all that stuff get conflated is because when we see people who are not conforming to the way we expect people to look in public space, we go, oh, look at the homeless person. Another misconception was that homeless people were coming from elsewhere. And while that might be true for a small percentage of people, the majority of people who are unhoused in a community are, are of that community, from that, belong to that community. What's your take on sort of our perception of who the homeless are versus who they actually are? Okay, well, let me back up a little bit and say both of those things you said are true, that people primarily become homeless uh, in the place where they reside, and they don't leave. But it is also true that people do leave. I think there are a lot of small cities in California like that that were hard hit by increasing housing. They were hard hit by people moving from the Bay Area out there. They were hard hit by the recession, by the collapse of the agricultural economy. There's a million reasons why people in, say, the Central Valley lose housing. Um, but, you know, they weren't the only ones hit. Right, that those governments in Central Valley and Kern County, they also lost the majority of their income um, and just don't have any resources available. Um, and they don't have any jobs available. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with San Francisco State Urban Studies and Planning Professor Tony Sparks about why the issues of housing and homelessness are so difficult for us to solve. People do come searching for jobs. They do come searching for housing. I have talked to city officials in small towns where it's like, yes, if we have a person who needs help, we can't provide it. We will say, go to a bigger city. So I think both of those happen. There's two things at issue there. First, like you mentioned, most people are homegrown. Most people don't go, especially if they became unhoused in a relatively large city. People stay where their families are. They stay where their social connections are. They stay where their resources are. They stay where their jobs are. And those tend to be in cities. Not only do people do move, but just people, you and I, do move. This used to make me so mad in hearings at City Hall, San Francisco City Hall, not just from general public, but from workers in city government. You know, people are coming from somewhere else. You know, how, why should we provide them uh, services? I'm like, it's San Francisco. Nobody is from here. You look at this, this, the census, like 
20% of the population was born here. And yet we let them use our water and our sidewalks willy nilly. You know, the whole argument just seems sort of specious to me. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not from here. I mean, I'm from the East Bay. But I'm not from San Francisco. You're right. We move around. And of course, people who are housed or unhoused are going to make different cho- make choices. Yeah, absolutely. You and I came here for jobs. And I'll bet, I'll bet poor people do that too. <laughs> right. You mentioned earlier that the abilities cities have are moving people. And a lot of the moving people is punitive. And we've heard a lot in the news recently, in recent months and years, about closing encampments and you know throwing away the stuff at the encampments, people's belongings. Cities removing poor people is literally as old as cities. Our vagrancy statutes that punish people for being in city spaces because they didn't have a place to go or they didn't have work, worked alongside um, sundown t- town laws and ugly laws to push poor racialized minorities out of cities for literally as long as there have been cities in the United States. In the early 1970s, a case called uh, Papa Cristo versus, I can't remember the state, uh, struck down those vagrancy laws. And part of the reason they struck down those vagrancy laws is because they were overly vague. And it's hilarious. If you go back and read them, they, it's just a list of random stuff that people do that can get you arrested for for vagrancy, like juggling, being in a traveling circus, like all of this crazy stuff. It's like, what do they do? Yeah, add that. What are they doing? Yeah, add that. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's funny because those laws got handed down uh, from medieval British common law. They became our laws. And then we just sort of just started just adding on stuff. You know, as more stuff happened, we just... So uh, so in the 1970s, they struck that down. They said it was vague, but they also said that part of the argument was that it's partially an Eighth Amendment violation. The idea that you can't punish people for doing things necessary because of their housing status. So then what cities after Papa Cristo started doing was not changing the outcome, right? They still wanted to move, uh, not not specifically poor, but physically, aesthetically non-conforming bodies uh, and racialized bodies from urban prime spaces to where you can't see them. Starting during that time, laws started coming up on the books about punishing conduct. So things like anti-sleeping laws, anti-loitering laws, park hours. So these were technically ways of getting around the Eighth Amendment issue. This became increasingly important in the late 80s, uh, early 1990s, uh, when San Francisco found itself uh, in a real crisis and it needed to revitalize, right? Um, It was losing federal redevelopment dollars. It was losing HUD dollars. And I should mention this when when we talk about lack of housing, federal government funding for housing has dropped 90% since the 1970s. So, you know, this left a giant hole for, for San Francisco and they filled it the way that cities fill holes. And that was through gentrification. So they, they gave away money for redevelopment. They rezoned things for research and high tech. They uh, gave away public assets to private corporations. They gave tax breaks to high tech companies to come in. But as part of that, the people that they wanted to attract by and large were, were put off by the presence of, of visibly poor people. So as we see that process of gentrification began in late 1980s, early 1990s, we see alongside it an increasing emphasis uh, from the top down on policing of visibly poor bodies. 
and people have variously called this different things, uh, disorder policing, uh, quality of life policing, broken windows policing. My point is this has been around forever. Mayors Breed and Newsom, Brown and Agnos, all of them, Jordan, it's all this has been going on the whole time. You know, I think now what we're seeing is a sort of heightened emphasis on this, both because of what I talked about increasing visibility earlier, but also this visibility isn't happening in a vacuum. You know, Mayor Breed is, is kind of in a tough spot. You know, a lot of people didn't come back from COVID. You know, I walked uh, five o'clock. I walked from Powell Street BART station to Chinatown to get drinks with a friend. And it was a ghost town. Like five o'clock in the financial district prior to pandemic would have been packed. That has been picked up by the media. There has been a number of outcries from uh, merchants who really relied on those dollars. The whole San Francisco is dying narrative sort of grew out of that. So she's very much sort of at the same point that, you know, folks like uh, Mayors Jordan and Brown were facing in the context of the tools that she has at her disposal. Let's talk about what might work. Like, can you highlight maybe some of the successful programs or strategies you're aware of that maybe made a positive impact? What about San Francisco's Care Not Cash program from several years ago? What is really interesting about Care Not Cash is not Care Not Cash in particular, um, but what Care Not Cash sort of embodies in the grand scheme of what we're looking at today. The first federal homeless legislation happened in 1987. It was McKinney-Vento. And it happened during a time of recession, and they thought of, of the problem of homelessness at that time as an emergency, as, you know, like a hurricane or, or a tornado or something. And so they created McKinney-Vento as an emergency response to homelessness. And that was the idea. They would throw some money at it, and then it would go away when the economy came back. One example of that is that they paid emergency shelters based on bed nights. So, you know, you had a shelter, you had 100 cots. If you filled those 100 cots, you got a set amount of money for, for each cot. By the mid-1990s, there was a general shift in U.S. policy. This is one of those rare moments where, where conservatives and liberals sort of agreed that this policy of just paying to keep people homeless and alive was not helping anything. And the result from that was two important shifts in terms of care not cash in San Francisco policy. One was the shift to, instead of giving money for bed nights, giving money based on competitive grants, where cities that show they were making moves towards things that the federal government thought were, were working would get more money. And also a shift away from thinking of homelessness as an emergency that would just go away by itself to something that was uh, endemic and importantly at that point personal. The problem was personal choices or uh, personal afflictions. So the shift really became an emphasis on this continuum of care approach or moving people from homeless into permanent housing. And the assumption there was that if people didn't have housing, it's because they weren't, quote, housing ready. And so they needed to be moved gradually. They needed to be made able to be housed. And so Care Not Cash really came out of that movement. So what Care Not Cash essentially did was reduce GA. Uh, that was just a, a check that, that people get for not being able to work. And that was in the context of two things. One was conservatives were like, oh, you're giving people money to be homeless. You're just enabling it. Well, liberals were like, GA is not enough money. Housing costs are going up and GA is not enough. So, you know, those two come together in Care Not Cash. 
um, where Gavin Newsom says, I'm going to take some of this GA money. I'm going to use my reduction of this GA money to apply for this bigger pot of federal money that I can get from moving people into housing. And I'm going to provide permanent supportive housing. It's a good idea, right? It's, it's moving people into housing. But it made getting that housing dependent on there being something wrong with you. So you had to sort of go through the bureaucratic hurdles to access that housing. And secondly, permanent supportive housing is much more expensive than regular housing. So what ended up doing was helping a very small subset of the population very well, but leaving the growing numbers of people who are becoming unhoused completely unaddressed. Now, to be fair, San Francisco as a city has increased that pot of housing. They've been working to make the bureaucratic hurdles easier to navigate. But two things remain true. There's nowhere near enough space for as many people who need it. And there's no way it's ever going to catch up with the number of people who are losing. So what can we do? We don't have a government that's going to systemically say housing is a riot. How do we make sure people who are unhoused, that their voices are part of this process? Uh, what can we do here to, to try to get at this issue? The truth is, I don't know. We have kind of thrown up our hands at the problem. There's two particular cases at issue. One is Boise v. Idaho, and the other one is Grants Pass, Oregon versus Johnson. And in these cases, what the court was doing is saying, listen, we understand. We understand that you can't solve the problem, but you also can't treat people as less than human, like garbage to be removed. In the Boise case, you can't criminally prosecute somebody for being on the street if you don't have a space to offer them. Shortly after that, there was another decision in Grants Pass, and that decision was really about civil procedures. You can't fine people, you can't sanction people for being in public space if they don't have anywhere else to go. What that case also did was, however, was constitute those who are involuntarily homeless as a class. So it was assumed in that court case that people who are living on the street are there because they don't have a place to go. Coalition on Homelessness in San Francisco sues San Francisco city government, citing the Boise case and the Grants Pass case, and says, not only are what you're doing, what you're doing with suites in San Francisco a violation of Boise, but you're also violating people's Fourth Amendment rights by taking their crap and throwing it away. You're taking people's you know, ID, you're taking their things they need to survive, their medications. The judge says, yeah, that's bad. City of San Francisco does not abide by the law. They continue doing the same thing. Judge grants an injunction that says, no, really, this is inhumane. You have to stop. San Francisco tries to get it dismissed unsuccessfully. Very much hinges on this idea of involuntary homelessness. They'll agree to leave a camp. Somebody will say, okay, you have a shelter referral. We'll get to the referral and go, oh, that's been filled for hours. We got nothing. Now the person has no tent. They have no sleeping bag. And they're just out, right? Other times, an offer of shelter might be a couple of hours in a shelter or in a shelter that that person has been assaulted in in the past or a shelter that's just icky in any array of ways. But if you offer somebody shelter and they turn it down, it wasn't adequate. You didn't do your job. So to get back to your question about what can we do, I don't know. There's little things, of course, that have been proven that we know work. And let me just say that... The stuff that we're trying now, care court increased 
penalties for drugs, um, sweeps. These are things that we have a long history, a long demonstration of social science research that these things do not work. So we are consciously doing things we already know don't work. There are small things that do work. Rent control helps. Eviction moratoriums help. Small efforts at socialized housing helps. Utilizing the federal government's full right of using public property for low-income or no-income housing, that helps. If your big concern is seeing people who are, are drunk or high, we have evidence that show wet houses help, where people can come and have a stable place to live and you know meet them where they're at. If they need help, they can get help. You know, it works in Seattle, it works in New York, it works in Boston. We know that housing first is an effective strategy. And what I mean by that is offering safe, adequate housing, no conditions, no questions. So we, we know all of those work. Thank you to my guest, Tony Sparks, Associate Professor of Urban Studies and Planning in the Public Affairs and Civic Engagement, or PACE, program at San Francisco State. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.